children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. And whoever's leading this morning gets the privilege of having a little bit quieter group because my kids are in Manitoba with Grandpa and Grandma. Though Cooper would be sad, he loves singing Living Hope. So anytime we sing that in church, that's his song. So I'll have to tell him when he gets back, you miss Living Hope. This, this is life and death. This is John chapter 11. This is what John has been building to and what we've been building to for months. It's that feeling you get right before Christmas when you finally wake up and you know you finally get to open your presents. It was kind of the feeling when I woke up this morning because everything in John is crying out for Jesus to be the bringer of life, the freer of chains. This is the story where John puts that on display. Remember who John is writing to. John's been writing this gospel to the next generation. Not the people that grew up with Jesus, but people decades later. And he's telling them that you should look at the signs. It'll lead you to belief in Jesus, and you'll find life in his name. You'll find life in him. But how do you show that to people? Jesus isn't there. How do you reveal it to people? You go to Lazarus. He's been building to it. Jesus can turn water into wine, heal a man's legs who doesn't work. He knows the history of the Samaritan woman, and he can open the eyes of the blind. But does he have what it takes? Life and death. Because if we believe in him and there's not life in his name, then he's just a healer, he's just a teacher, and he's not worth dying for. But if there's life in his name, he's Messiah, he's King, he's Christ. So John tells this story. And Matthew Ritzkis was preaching on it last week, and he told us the introduction and the beginning of this story. Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick, and he loves Lazarus, but he waits intentionally. And instead of heading to him right away, he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. Though that his son may be glorified, Something incredible is going to come out of this pain. Going back to where Lazarus lives is a death sentence in many ways. Bethany is two miles outside of Jerusalem, the capital where the people waiting to arrest Jesus and execute him are. Will Jesus lead his disciples right to the edge where all the Jews will be able to see this display? Knowing that Jesus resurrecting someone, this proof of his divinity this clear display of him being creator, they're going to kill him for this. He's not going to get out of this alive. Will he go? He's going to say in two more chapters that the greatest love you can show someone is to lay down your life for your friend. And Jesus decides to go. His disciples know the high cost of this. Right? What does Thomas say? Thomas says, let's go with him that we may die with him. For three years, they've been following this guy as he speaks God's word and as he does supernatural things, and now he's leading them right into the lion's den. And the disciples are going to follow him there, even if it costs them their lives. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and you see Martha come out to meet him. Where's Mary? Where is she? She's back at the house. 
But Martha comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. Saying that you failed Jesus by not showing up in time. The result would have been so different. Lazarus would have life if you were here. That's verse 21 of chapter 11. But she still acknowledges him as Lord and says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I trust in you. I know who you are. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She says, yes, I know. He will rise the resurrection the last day. That's verse 24. She's referencing heaven, the end of Revelation. I understand. Life is coming. And Jesus says, no, life is now. Life is me. That's verse 25. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's to come into the world. That's where we pick up today's story. We're going to encounter Mary and her reaction, and then we're going to go right to the tomb. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have it on your phone or you like it in paper, open it up to John 11. We're going to start reading at verse 28. It won't be on the slides behind me, so you just have to follow along in your Bible. Here we go. After she had said this, that's Martha, she went back and called her sister Mary aside And said, the teacher is here. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly. She went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Do you know what the Jews didn't do when Martha left the house? They didn't follow her. Something was going on with Mary that must have been different than Martha. Martha seems to go to Jesus and wants a rational conversation. Jesus, here are the facts. You have the power to make a difference. You didn't show up. He's gone. I'm upset. And then Jesus beautifully responds rationally explaining his identity and that you can trust in him. But when Mary leaves the house, a crowd of people follow, mourners. Mary is hurting, and you're going to see in the next few verses, she's wailing. She's hurting. And the group of Jews who've come out to mourn are with her, and they follow her. She's in pain. So when she reaches Jesus, her response is going to be different than Martha. Martha's rationalizing this event and trying to understand the logic of Jesus not showing up. Mary's going to fall at his feet. This is verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
I'm reading out of my NIV. If you're reading out of a different one, instead of troubled, you might see a different word there. He was troubled when he saw the weeping. This word troubled has tones of aggression to it. I was reading in the commentary. I don't know a lick of Greek. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, what does this mean? Why is he so troubled seeing these people weeping? They're wailing as people that have no hope. Jesus encounters this. These people in his presence falling apart, they're dejected. And Jesus looks at that and it frustrates him and it upsets him. Mary knows him. These Jews, Jesus has revealed himself to them. And Jesus shows up and there's just hopelessness. Hopelessness. She's on her knees, she's on the ground. There's hopelessness. And Jesus is bothered by this. And Jesus is allowed to be bothered by this because he is their living hope. And they're wailing as if they have no hope. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So you have two different groups of people. There's people over here saying, look at his genuine weeping. He genuinely loved Lazarus, and we don't need to question that. And then there's people over here saying, if he did genuinely love him, what would Jesus have done? Anything. He can open blind men's eyes. He has Yahweh's power, and he shows up four days late. He doesn't love him. Now, Jesus' weeping is a different word. That's sorrowful weeping. That's crying. That's not wailing. That's crying. But they're battling this battle that we still face today. Is Jesus all-powerful or is he all-loving? Because we experience pain and hardship in our lives like Mary and Martha. And either Jesus is all-loving, but he's not strong enough to take away our pain. Or Jesus is all-powerful and he can take away our pain, but he just lets it happen. Because his love wavers. It must be one or the other. Either he can't heal Lazarus or he doesn't care. Because in their minds, it doesn't work that he could perfectly love Lazarus and allow him to die when Jesus had the power to reverse it. Why would he allow that? Why would he allow that in your life? Why would he allow that in mine? So Jesus is at the tomb This is something I had never noticed before as I read the story. Look at verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. It says that once more, do you catch that in verse 38? Once more he was deeply moved. Something inside of him was disturbed as he reached the entrance of the tomb. He saw it. He saw the stone in front of the cave's door. 
and it wrecked him. He was troubled by it. What's he thinking about? It doesn't say. He approaches this cave, and he's going to be buried in a cave. His death is coming. It's weeks away. He's right there, and he sees it, and it shatters him. John doesn't record Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes when we read the gospel story, we can read it, believing Jesus was so obedient, so loving, and so willing to die that to him it was nothing at all. But that's not the case. Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, God, is there any other way? I don't want the cross. I don't want the tomb. Is there any other way? And he goes back to his disciples and goes back to pray and back to his disciples and back to pray. Because guess what? That was going to hurt. It was going to cost him everything. He was going to wear the sin of the world. He was going to bear that pain. And he had never sinned. He had never been separated from his father. And he was about to feel what it's like to have sin separate you from dad. But at the end of it, Jesus says, not my will, Father. It's your will. Jesus saying, I will go through the pain. If you are going to use it for a greater good, I'll go through it. Because Jesus understands that God uses pain to accomplish his purpose. And he's willing to experience it. Part of me wonders if that's what Jesus is thinking about when he approaches the tomb. Maybe he's thinking about the way sin and death has wrecked this beautiful world that Jesus helped create. He is the word. He was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him. John chapter one. Jesus breathed life into creation and now he's standing face to face with what sin and death has done to his creation and it's taken away his friend. Verse 39, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there four days. This verse is important. What this tells us is that there's confirmation of the timeline. Up to three days, the Jews believed that you could resuscitate the human, that a healer could heal someone who had passed away, and their spirit could come back. Their spirit hadn't left yet. So if it was anywhere within that three-day window, Martha would have surely opened up the door to let Jesus in. Because there's still this little sliver of hope that he could go in and heal Lazarus, do something, and Lazarus would be able to come back. His spirit hadn't abandoned his body yet. But by Martha saying, there's no hope, there's no point, the stink has taken on. It confirms for this audience that it surely was four days. There was no point in letting Jesus in. No good would come from opening up this door. There would only be the stench of death and nothing else. Martha is thinking rationally. There's no point in letting the healer into a situation where healing can't take place. And Jesus catches Martha right in her words and says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? 
He had had this conversation with Martha just a few verses ago. Back in verse 24, 25, 26. And even when the messengers brought the news that Lazarus was dying and sick. Back in verse 4. Jesus said, this is going to end in glory. This is going to end in my power, my identity being put on display. And Martha is standing in front of the door. Don't open it. Don't open it. Jesus is like, didn't I tell you you're going to see something? Roll it open. I'm going in. I get fired up when I read this story, but I know what's coming next. Martha had no idea, but I get excited. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up, and Jesus said this. Pay attention to this prayer. This is interesting. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. What is Jesus doing? He's revealing, before the miracle even takes place, where the source of power comes from. Father, thank you for the result of this miracle that's about to take place, so that when Lazarus stands up and walks out, this debate that they've been having now for chapters, is Jesus' power from the demonic, or is it from the creator? Remember what the Pharisees said when Jesus healed the man born blind, when Jesus did this? Surely, Surely it's by the power of demons. Jesus heals the man who couldn't walk. Must be demons. Something supernatural is going on, but he breaks Sabbath. There's no way this is Yahweh. Jesus steps in front of it and says, Father, this miracle is from you, and I want everyone to know. I want every person here to know you sent me. Why? Because only the creator has the ability to create life. Only he can breathe life into dust and it becomes man. And Jesus is about to do that. Just like he did back in Genesis when Jesus was there as they created life in Adam. Humanity. When he had said this in verse 43, Jesus called out in a loud voice, I won't yell, Lazarus, Come out. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen, a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes. Let him, what? Let him go. Why? Do you see the image? Lazarus comes out of the grave and where is he bound? Look at the verse. What does it say? Where is he bound? His hands are bound. His feet are bound. And his face is covered. Jesus says, let this man go. Not undress this man. Not clean him up. Let him go. Break those chains. Take those shackles off of him. Release him. He's chained at the feet and the hands by death. And Jesus has set the prisoner free and says, unbind him. 
He's no longer needing these chains. He's no longer a prisoner of sin and death. He's been released. The doors are open. He can walk out of his jail cell. So he doesn't need to remain handcuffed any longer. I've released him from death. His eyes have been uncovered. He can see. Release him from death. When I share with people what it's like to receive the gospel of grace, it's like this. It's this moment of resuscitation. He takes dead, sinful people. Instead of demanding that we become perfect like him, he breathes perfection into us. He hands righteousness that we don't deserve to us. He takes dead people like me, dead in my sin. And the result of sin is death. And he says, Darren, life for you. And I experience brand new life. The grip that sin used to have on me, broken. The temptation's not gone. Satan will constantly use sin to distract me, try to convince me that my life is found in sinful things, that they'll satisfy me greater than he will, but it's a lie. My life is found in him. I've been set free, and Jesus has said, take those chains off of Darren, let Darren go. Not one day when I stand before the creator at the edge of heaven, but now. And that's for you too. What I'm trying to allow you to have a glimpse of is what I believe John must have been doing to those people that he was trying to share the gospel with. You see the signs of Jesus. His identity is revealed. You believe in him. And he gives you brand new life. You go, yeah, I get it. Heaven, one day resurrection, Jesus says, no man, I am life now. We are supposed to live our lives in a brand new way from now forever. Not because he demands it of you and demands it of me, but because we are brand new creatures. Do you understand that this isn't a 2,000-page list of rules demanding that you live a certain way to make him happy, otherwise you'll die? That's not the case. He met you in your death and defibrillated you back to life, and you get a whole new shot at it, and your heart has been changed so that this is the way you want to live. Pursuing him is the way that you want to go. And what's your role? To pick up your cross and walk. Even if it costs you everything, pick up your cross and walk. Why? Because this world can't take away your life. Your life is found in him. Amen? Oh, man. Come on. Come on. Oh, man. I hope that every person that I interact with recognizes the fact that I'm living a brand new life. Not because I'm perfect, but because I've been changed. I struggle with sin every day. But sin doesn't bind me, my friends. I struggle with it constantly. But those chains have been broken by my king so that I can sing, he's my living hope, that death no longer has its grip on me. The next story after this 
the Jews are debating how exactly they'll arrest Jesus and execute him. They need to. And in chapter 12, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. He washes his disciples' feet. He prays with them. He has a meal with them. When they arrest Jesus, he's going to his death. His disciples were terrified. They ran in fear, but we don't have to. Because we know that this death does not end in destruction. It leads to resurrection power. And that's something we're celebrating. That's a victory we're celebrating, isn't it? Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. I do, and you've changed my life, and I believe that you've changed the lives of the people in this church family. That's why we're here. That's why we sing. That's why we have this hope. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the people in our community and our friends and even our family members who don't know who you are, that they would recognize that in you is life and they would see that reflected by the Holy Spirit inside of us and they would just cry out, you have something I don't have and I want it. And it's because they're walking in darkness but we've come into the light. Not because of something we've done but because of grace imparted to us. Lord Jesus, I pray that over our youth group I pray that over our moms and dads and our grandpas and grandmas, the young adults and the seniors, Lord Jesus, everyone in between, that they would be lighthouses of hope, beacons of light in a dark world that is trying to crush us with despair. Father, meet us in our pain. And we know that you shape us through pain and reveal yourself to us. Even today, you do it through pain. Help us to not lose hope in the dark moments when we really want to give up and it feels overwhelming. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that today there is hope in this church family and there is hope found in you. That is something we're celebrating. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. One last time.